if you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to turn them to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're going to continue our study in 1 Timothy 6. But as you're turning there, I do want to say, um, if you are a guest here, we are honored that you're here. Um, and there are lots of other places you could have been. Um, and you've chosen to be with us. And I'll just tell you, this is what you're going to get with Capshaw. We are not a perfect church. If you came today searching for the perfect church, I'm here to let you know right now, we are not a perfect church. And we are full of imperfect people, including the person that's standing in front of you right now, completely unperfect. But we serve and we worship a God. And we worship a King Jesus, as we just sung about, right? And, and that's what you're going to get from us. We're not going to beat you up with a list of things you need to do. Uh, we want to show you the gospel. We want to show you how Jesus has paid the bill in full. How he has come to live a life that you and I could never live. And die a death that you and I deserve to die. And conquer an enemy that you and I could not conquer ourselves. And that he's risen from the grave. And that's the pervasive message that is in our songs. That's the pervasive message that's in our, in, 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 as, as we preach and as we open up God's word. Because we believe that no matter where we are in the text, we can show you this King Jesus. That all roads in the Bible lead to the cross. All roads in the Bible lead to Jesus. So we're going to continue again our study this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We believe in expositional preaching, meaning uh, we simply preach through books of the Bible. And whatever, wherever we left off last week is where we're going to pick up this week. And, and what's good about that is you don't get all the pastor's favorite sermons. You get the full picture of the Word of God. And we think that's more edifying for your soul. And so, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let me just pick up and read for us there. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 through 16. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as we read these words, it is as if Jesus, it is as if God himself is speaking to us. Verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal minion. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, we recognize God in this moment. Father, I recognize in this moment that 
I'm a man full of all sorts of inadequacies. But yet you are a God that dwells in unapproachable light. No one has seen you. You are immortal. You are invisible. You, 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 there's not a space that contain you. And so God, we pray, knowing these things, we appeal to your character. God, that you might increase, I might decrease. And what is left, Father, is your word permeating in and through our lives. So the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word stands forever. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. And J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. The armies of the West led by Aragorn. Uh, they march to the Black Gate of Mordor for the final batter, battle um, in the war over the ring. And these men of the West stood ready to fight Sauron's army. Made up of orcs and, and trolls and manless allies. Whose numbers Tolkien describes as ten times or more than ten times the size of Aragon's army. Seeing that his army is intimidated by being outnumbered, Aragon charges them to fight by saying this. My brothers, I see in your eyes the fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of man fails and we forsake our friends and break our bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day. This day we fight for all that you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you stand, men of the West. You see, it's charges like, like this one that are to impose upon us our duty. They, they call us to fulfill our responsibility, even in the midst of being outnumbered. In, in the midst of an overwhelming challenges. Charges like this can be inspirational and personal and sober and, and profound. And it's, and it's that type of charge that we find here in our passage this morning. And Paul gives Timothy in our passage this morning, he, he's saying, and he begins this portion of the letter with a very personal charge. He says, but as for you, O man of God, depending on what your translation, it may not have the word O there, but, but in the Greek it, it has it. It's to signify, this is something that's rare in the New Testament. It's to signify something significant that he's saying here. O man of God, verse 11. And in, and in verse 13, he uses this pronoun you again when he says, I charge you. And this charge is preserved for us in Scripture. Because it's not just a charge for Timothy. It's a charge for us as well. To, to borrow from Aragon's uh, uh, thinking, brothers and sisters, let me say this. There may be a day when the word of God doesn't matter anymore. But it is not on this day. It is not in our time and it is not going to be in our church. 
You see, with a sense of sobriety and weight, Scripture charges us, brothers and sisters, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. Because this passage is written in the present tense, it has a real relevance for us today as disciple makers, as husbands and fathers and wives and mothers and as grandparents and as, as, as children, as students. It has real relevance for us in our age where we are increasingly realizing we are, uh, th that there is a dismissal of the word of God and a dismissal over the authority of the word of God in our lives. You see, in the midst of the world's disdain for and dismissal of even the op and even opposition to God, we must be pastors and lay members and husbands and wives and wives and mothers and, 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 and that say, not on this day, not today, not, not in our time and not in our homes, not in our church. We must recognize that we are at war. There's a spiritual battle being waged over the turf of your heart. Do you, do you recognize that? Which is going to bring me to the first point I want us to draw out of our passage this morning. In verse 11. First thing is that, 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 that men and women of God must be diligent about waging war over the spiritual turf of our lives. Men and women of God must be diligent about waging war over the spiritual turf of their lives. And Paul shows us there are, are two tactics that we must use in order to wage this war. One tactic in spiritual warfare will involve, and listen, it will involve running away. Fleeing, taking off, right? Paul begins, but you, O man of God, flee from all this. That is, flee from the things that, that, that characterize false teachers. That, that Pastor John described for us last week in verses 3 through 10. He unpacked for us. Flee the, the false teaching that, that marginalized Christ in his teaching. Flee from the petty controversies and quarrels about the word. Flee from divisive talk. And flee the religious delusion that, that sees godliness as a, as, as a means of gain, of financial gain. He says, fight and, and uh, flight, that is, flight as a spiritual strategy is crucial, not only in this passage, but in several other of Paul's writings and his philosophy of ministry. Later on in 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul recommends uh, flight as the defense from sensuality, to, to flee the evil desires of our youth. And it was the, the wisdom that centuries before had saved the patriarch Joseph from Potiphar's wife when he left his cloak 
in her grasping hand and fled from the house. You remember that story from Genesis 39 where Joseph has been appointed basically the head of the secret service, the given dominion over all sorts of things, over everything else in the land except his Potiphar's wife. And his wife, Potiphar's wife, sought to tempt and to lure Joseph in. Any attempt to stay and reason with Potiphar's seductive wife would have been too much for Joseph. And so he flees. Likewise, Timothy is to flee, to, to run away from, to, to get away from the controversies and quarrels about the word. Lest he too be sucked into this vortex of such decay. Decay over the gospel, decay over the church at Ephesus. He is also to flee those who are promoting what is called today the prosperity gospel, which, which equates godliness with gain. And so if we desire to be men and women of God, there are times when we must show our back to evil and run as fast as our legs can take us away. In the opposite direction. But the Christian life does not consist only of flight. God's servants are also to follow hard after spiritual virtues. You look at the text with me there in verse 11. He says, and pursue. So flee from these things and pursue. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. These six pursuits here are arranged in, in really three pairs that make up this balanced picture of the Christian leader, his spiritual well-being, his spirituality. He is to pursue righteousness and godliness. And these terms, they cover the horizontal and the vertical dimensions of the Christian life. Horizontally, there must be righteous conduct, uprightness, right? And also a fairness in dealing with others. Vertically, a godly life is called for, which, which as Paul has said in, in 1 Timothy 4, 8 says, has value for all things and hold, uh, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So both righteousness and godliness reference observable conduct. They go together and, and enhance each other producing a life well spoken of on earth and in heaven. A life worth imitating. This is why we've, 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 we've unpacked in 1 Timothy what, what is the man of God? What is the pastor? What is the elder? It's a life worth imitating. So, so yes, it's true that these are for pastors, but these are, these are for everyone. This is something that everyone should aspire to, right? But in Christian leaders, this is something that's non-negotiable. 
Because you, you want to bear a mark of something that's worth resembling and worth following, worth imitating. But Paul next commends the ultimate Christian virtues, right? Faith and love. Verse 11, right? Faith and love are, are regularly put together in the pastoral epistles. Here the, the emphasis is on faithfulness and love for others, right? Last on the list is endurance and gentleness. And these are especially helpful ministry qualities. Endurance is won't quit determination in the face of opposition over the gospel. And gentleness is the quality of tender, patient, self-control in, in dealing with people amidst the difficulties of ministry. It's a strength under control. So we see that, that Paul commands Timothy to pursue a balanced spirituality in his ministry. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and endurance, and gentleness. But, 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 but what stands out in all of this is the contrasting emphasis on fleeing and pursuing. Fleeing and pursuing. Negatively, we are to consistently flee evil. But positively, we are to, to, to keep on pursuing good. Right? The, the irony in this, right? I, I see lots of irony in this. Is that, that the, the irony is that we as humans, if we're absolutely honest with ourselves, we as broken sinners, right? Regularly pursue ends that, that we know are disastrous. And we turn our backs on and, and flee those things that, that will bring us ultimate fulfillment and joy. The wisdom here really is so elementary. It's so elementary. Now, although we are called to pursue this holiness, don't get the impression that followers of Christ can gain their own righteousness merely through self-effort, okay? It's not just as simple as pulling up your own bootstraps, right? White-knuckling this thing. I'm just going to flee this evil and I'm going to pursue this good. Listen, our initial righteousness and faith and, and every other aspect of our ongoing sanctification has been bought for us in Christ, by Christ. Only as we are in Christ, so these things become a reality for us to, to live out and to give us power uh, by the Spirit, to even, to even flee evil and to pursue godliness. So, so part of the Christian life is going to take actual effort Right? It's going to take actual effort. However, it is going to be a grace-driven effort. Which is exactly why Paul doesn't give these imperative commands in isolation to themselves. This type of charge will always be connected to something. You look closely in Scripture. These types of imperative to do, things to do, will always be connected to something. Which brings us to the next point I want us to capture from the text this morning. If a believer is going to live a godly life, 
then they must have a firm grasp of the gospel. If a believer is going to live a godly life, then, then, then it is imperative that you have a firm grasp of the gospel. See, Paul uniquely understood that something was required to shape our motives. Something had to give us the desire to, to flee evil, to, to flee from ungodliness and to pursue godliness. Something was going to be required to change the reason we would even want to pursue a godly life. So not only are we to run in pursuit of a godly life, notice, secondly, verse 12, he's also to be a fighter. He's also to be a fighter. Paul says, fight the good fight of the faith. Literally in the Greek, it means to agonize the good agony. To agonize the good agony. So I think about this. Can you tell that, that Paul likes sports? I'm convinced if Paul were alive right now, he would have watched the Auburn-Georgia game with me yesterday and discussed. <laughs> right? I'm convinced he would have, right? And he uses all these types of sports analogies, right? All throughout his writings. And I'll just say, anyone who's ever run competitively, maybe, in their life, or, or run to get in shape in their life, they understand the, the, intense, the intensity insinuated here, right? To agonize the good agony. <laughs> the, the, you run until you think you can run no more. Right? But, but you keep on running until your legs are burning, your, your lungs are burning, your legs feel like absolute lead. And you feel like you can't go another step, but, but you press on, right? You press on and you kick it up. You kick it up a notch towards the end, right? And you run and you see the finish line and you push and you push, agonizing the good agony knowing that what it's going to produce is much greater than that momentary like heartache and hurt that it's causing right then, right? Paul, Paul probably would have had in mind, not necessarily a runner, he could have just had a runner in mind, but he probably had in mind the gladiators of ancient Greece and Rome. He probably has in mind that this warrior headed to battle, right? He, he writes, think about this, he's writing this, this letter to Timothy. He's pastoring a church in Ephesus. He writes another letter to this church in Ephesus in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 through 17 and he instructs the church to, to put on the whole armor of God. And he uses that imagery there for the church's whole spiritual battle. And the question is, in this, at least I think the question is, who or what is the man of God to fight? So we're, we're, we're charged to fight the good fight of the faith. Who or what does the man of God fight? Well, some commentators teach that there are, there are three things that, that the Christians will be fighting throughout the course of their life. If you look at, if we had time, uh, maybe I, I have a little bit of time. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Let's turn there really quickly. I wasn't sure if I was going to do that or not. 
Ephesians 2. Probably should have even marked this in my Bible, shouldn't I? Ephesians 2, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. So there's the world, right? Following the prince and the power of the air. There's the devil. There's Satan. And the spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So there's the picture of us, our flesh. And he goes on to talk about the sinful desires of our flesh in Ephesians 2. You can turn back to 1 Timothy 1. I just want to do that for effect, right? There are three things, though, that they point out here and the, and the commentators point out in this passage, the things we'll be fighting against. The world... And yes, it's true. Anyone can see that the world and our culture are, are steadily growing more and more hostile towards the gospel. But this isn't something new to the 21st century. This isn't something new to, to, the, to, the, to, to the American culture in 2018. As we've already mentioned over and over again as our time in 1 Timothy 3 that, that Paul was to continually Paul was continually telling Timothy to fight for the faith of which some have already abandoned some have already walked away from totally. And so yes, there is there are clear obstacles and hurdles in this world that we will need to navigate through. But I don't think the world is our biggest problem. And, and the other thing that I've mentioned in Ephesians 2 and the commentators mentioned, right, is, is that there is the devil. Right? The devil made me do it. Right? And yes, it's true. That Satan will do everything he possibly can to get you to fail. Listen, Satan hates anything that is going to bring glory and honor to God. So you can rest assured that he is going to be working like a lying lion ready to devour. He's seeking, he's, he's praying, he's waiting to pounce on something. Just recognize that. So I'm not denying that at all. However, I don't think Satan's our biggest problem. In fact, the tactic that Satan uses is this, the, the very tactic that he used at the beginning of the fall. It's the same tactic. It's just packaged in different ways. For us, this may not be about not eating from this tree, but, but he's trying to get you to say and ask the question, did God really say? Did God really say these things? Did God really say this is a sin? Did God really, did God, does God really have a design for sexuality and for marriage? Does he really have a design? Does he really, did he really say those things? Therefore, I don't believe that our biggest problem is external outside of us. I think it's actually in us. The biggest battle will be over our own flesh. And much more specifically, our mind. Our core belief of the gospel. You see, there is, there is something inside all of us that wants to believe there is something we can do in order to obtain righteousness. That there is something more that we need to do in order to gain favor from God. 
If I can just be righteous enough to use all the imperative commands, right, that he just told us about, right? He just called us to live. If I could just be more righteous enough, if I could just be godly enough, if I could just have more faith, if I could just show more love, if I could just be steadfast in my spiritual walk or, or show more kindness towards others, if I just simply apply these things to my life, then me and God, we're going to be, we're going to be good. However, you and I can't do it. We can't do it. The Bible is clear. Even in our own righteousness, it's just as filthy rags. And I've used this example before, but, but there is enough pride in this sermon, in my very best sermon, to condemn me before a righteous God forever and ever. So even our own righteousness is filthy rags. So all the, the white knuckling that you think you can do, or I think that I can do, it will always, always fall short. The gospel is about trusting not in your own works, but in the life and works of Christ. Trusting in his substitution as being enough. And, and nothing else. And so for some of us, it will mean you, you struggle by thinking you've never really done enough. And for others, it will mean thinking you don't have to do anything because maybe you've already done enough. Nevertheless, don't be deceived in, in recognizing that both of these are a result of unbelief. It's an attack over the core understanding of the gospel, whether or not we believe and trust the gospel. Therefore, I believe when Paul is here telling Timothy to fight the good fight of the faith, he's speaking about the internal struggle inside of us, considering whether or not to believe the gospel is true. And he's telling Timothy, fight for the gospel. If we are going to be a faithful church, then we are going to have to fight for the gospel. Fight to keep it central in everything we do. Everything. But then Paul says, verse 12, take hold of the eternal life that you were called to and have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You see, eternal life is freely given for God is the one calling us to it. God is the one calling us. We can't take responsibility for it at all. Yet we fight to take hold of the faith. In effect, Paul instructs Timothy, he's, he's instructing believers, he's instructing you and I to experience the life you've already been given. Experience the life you've already been given. Timothy, Timothy had already received eternal life when Christ called him. But, but that wasn't the end of the story. And this is true for all followers of Christ. You are in Christ and you have his eternal life in you, but you struggle on a daily basis to experience the, the fullness of this supernatural life. Can I get an amen? 
And so until that day in the future, when you are completely free from sin and the spiritual battles of this life are over, you must continue in your day-to-day battle to experience life Christ has brought for you in the gospel. So to every brother or sister in Christ who feels as if the, the battle of the Christian life is too daunting, is too heavy, is, is too much to bear, Paul offers some encouragement for you, some exhortations. First, he has called, first is this understanding that, that he has called you by your name. He's demonstrating God's sovereignty over salvation and he declares you his child. You are not fighting against God. He is fighting for you. And second, you have confessed your faith. You have taken your stand with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this has been demonstrated most notably in your baptism, right? When you stood before witnesses and you said, my life is, is, is in Christ, is in Jesus I have died to my sins. I have been raised again in, in, in newness of life and new life. And therefore, we can, we can live in confidence in the gospel. And so this is what it means to grasp firmly the good confession. To fight for the faith. And then finally, lastly in verses 13 through 16. Timothy, it's, it's not just what you do. Timothy, it's not just what you say, but it's, it's what's motivating the whole thing. And I would ask you this morning, what's motivating you? Why, why are you really here? Why, why do you pick up your Bible? Why would you even want to pursue a godly life? What's, what's, what's really in it for you? What's, what's moving you every day? Have you ever stopped to think about that? The Lord this morning wants to take your heart and he wants to shape its motives. He wants to shape the motives of your heart. Which brings me to my final point I want us to draw from the text this morning. That our ultimate understanding of God and his gospel will be what motivates us to live a godly life. Our ultimate understanding of God and his gospel will be what motivates us to live this godly life. And look what the apostle is saying in verse 13. In the presence of God. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, we are living in the presence of God. Think of the, think of the godliest person in your life. Who's still living. Okay, the godliest person in your life who's still living. Now, you may not know that person personally, but, but you know that person. Now think about that person. 
Who's the godless person you know? Now, let me ask you a question. What would your life look like this week if that person shouted you 24-7? What would your life look like this week if that person were to shatter you 24-7? Would it be a little bit different? You think your speech might be a little kinder? You think your daily devotions might be just a, a little bit longer because this godly person is with you? You probably would, would live differently, wouldn't you? Well, Paul is saying to Timothy, don't you realize the Lord Jesus Christ is living with you? 24-7. He's not just shadowing you. He, he's not living, uh, he, he's living inside of you. You're, you're living in his presence. Furthermore, Timothy, let me tell you this, that the Lord Jesus Christ who lives with you and before you and behind you and in you, he is the one who bravely stood before Pontius Pilate and confessed that he was a king. And for that reason, Pilate and Herod and, and the rest put him to death on Calvary's cross. He was a faithful witness. Jesus was and is living with you. And he's calling you, he's calling Timothy here, he's calling you to be faithful witnesses. So be motivated by the presence of God. And then you look at verses 13 and 14. It's not only the presence of God, but it's the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 14. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, what he says. Our walk with Jesus, listen, is consequential. Our walk with Jesus is consequential. It makes an enormous difference. It makes all the difference in the world. I was reading this past week, Robbie Zacharias, if you know him, famous apologist, Bible teacher. He says in his autobiography, when he was considering which religion to adopt, he surveyed them all, as you would expect Robbie to do. And he said, I only had a few to work through. Because so many of them, like his own native religion, Hinduism, is inconsequential. It doesn't matter what you believe, whether you believe it or not. It, doesn't, it makes no difference. And neither does Buddhism. It is inconsequential. But ladies and gentlemen, faith in Jesus Christ is of the utmost consequences. When you put your faith in him, he has his eye on you. You are one of his elect. You are one of his special children. And from heaven's throne right now, he has his eye on you. And you cannot get lost. He sees you. He's got you. 
You can be six feet under the ground. You can return to dust and he's not going to lose sight of you. And he's coming back. He's coming back to reconstitute you as a full and glorious human being made just like he's made. And that's what he's doing. And when you're living your daily life in the humdrum, mundane, boring details of Monday morning, you realize, you realize this. You're living in the presence of the king. Who is one day going to gloriously return and take you home to be with him. And that, that changes everything about the humdrum, boring, Monday details of Monday morning. Now lastly, Paul says to Timothy, let's just lift up, let's, let's, let's lift up our, our voices together and praise the Lord. Because the ultimate motive for any of us in living a godly life is the glory and honor and the distinction of the only immortal God being praised by his people. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why we're created. That's why we exist. And that's what's on our hearts. That's what God has put on our hearts. And you could say, whatever I did today, did it honor him? Whatever I did today, did I live under his might and power? For he is the only immortal God. He is the only one who is king of kings and lord of lords. He is the only one who truly is the Lord. And it is so great that his being, as the text tells us, is invisible to every human being. And he is so great that he, he lives in unapproachable light. He is shrouded with piercing light and glory that, that no one can see and no one has seen. And that is the reason that he was incarnate in the Lord Jesus Christ in great humility so that we might see him and lay our eyes and our hands on him to hear his voice. The one that we put at the center of our life when we live a godly life is no one else other than the very creator and sustainer and the end of the universe. That's why Paul says, Timothy, be a man of God. Just like Samuel. Just like Eli. Just like Elijah. The ones who are called men of God. You be a woman of God. You be a man of God. By grasping tightly to the good confession. That Jesus is king. To the good news of the gospel. That he has lived the life that you and I can never live. 
And he's died as our substitute in our place. To the glory of God. That's the only thing that will motivate you to change at the core and to pursue this godly life. Your understanding of the gospel and a high view of God. Those are the things that drive us. Those are the things that motivate us to live this godly life. So I want to encourage you today. One point of application. I think we need to give ourselves to prayer. And I know some of you are saying, yeah, 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 I pray, pray. I, I get it, I get it. We need to pray more. Do you understand how desperate you are? Do you understand your absolute desperate need for God's provision in your life? Do we recognize that? Do we see the creator and sustainer of all things, the one who gives life and breath? He brings salvation. He brings growth. He brings sanctification. If we are going to live this godly life, then we need to be on our knees pleading with God to bring it. Yes, godly growth will require effort. But remember, it is a grace-driven effort. Grace that he freely gives to all who repent of their sins, put their faith and trust in Christ alone, and rest not in their own works, but in what Christ has done. Let's pray.